going back now to the 1530s, a time when religious reforms were introduced to Ireland at the behest of one King Henry VIII. Members of Catholic religious orders, monks, nuns and canons, saw their communities broken up, upending their way of life entirely. Dr. Brona Ann McShane is a lecturer in the Department of History at the University of Limerick and the author of the recently published Irish Women in Religious Orders, 1530 to 1700, Suppression, Migration and Reintegration. The book looks at how women in religious orders responded to the persecution of Catholics during this period. And uh, Brona joins me now. You're very welcome indeed to the History Show, Brona. Thanks very much, Miles. It's great to be on the show. Now, you take those religious reforms as, as your starting point in the book. But this is a story that spans the, uh, most of two centuries. And that saw waves of hardline policies and extreme repression with many nuns forced to flee the country and some losing their lives. When this programme of dissolution starts with Henry VIII, the shutting down of Roman Catholic monasteries, convents, enclosed religious orders, how systematic is it? And how far does royal power reach back in the 1530s? Yeah, so I suppose technically it's meant to reach across the island of Ireland, at least that's the plan from the, the point of view of the Tudor state administration. But in the in reality, um, the programme for the dissolution of the religious houses has a much more minimal impact in the sense that it is confined largely to what we would know as the Pale, the um, kind of greater Leinster area of the southeast of Ireland, where Tudor government administration was at its strongest and had a presence beyond the east and southeast of the country into what was known as Gaelic Ireland, the dissolution process and the attempts to eradicate religious life and close down monasteries and convents was far less effective. So really it's in these regions where we have much less influence of the Tudor state authorities that we have the greatest survival of medieval religious orders and foundations that really continue to survive right the way through the 16th century and into the 17th century. And that's evident by virtue of the fact that we have accounts from Tudor state governors in Ireland, you know, calling for these members of, of religious orders to cease observing this way of religious life and calls for the further suppression of these houses and communities of friars, monks and nuns. But as I say, really their, their effectiveness beyond the pale is much more limited and we have survival within Gaelic Ireland. Now, there were a number of religious in Ireland at the time, male religious, who decided to go with the flow, as it were, and to cooperate with the new dispensation. But nuns did not have that capacity for adaptation, did they? No, exactly. So that's what I was kind of interested in. How was the process of the dissolution of the monasteries a gendered phenomenon? Uh, male religious or men who were formerly members of religious orders that many of which would have been very closely linked to the state administration, they were able to adapt to new ways of, of life in terms of taking up appointments within the new state church. This was not an option available to women. Um, they were much more limited in terms of the options that they had and taking up appointments within, obviously, the new church, which was the Protestant state church, was not something that they were able to do. 
Now, I know it's difficult to reconstruct what happened to individual women in this period. There are obviously issues around survival of, of documents and material that's been lost over the centuries. But what did you find out about the options that women faced when their lives as nuns came to an end and when they had to leave uh, religious, uh, religious orders? Well, I suppose the options are, are, were very limited. For evidence that does survive, we know that some of them did receive pensions. So like the male religious, um, their male counterparts, the women also received pensions from the state. We know that at least two of the members of the Priory of Lismullen in County Meath were receiving their pensions as late as 1562. So about 20 or so years after the dissolution of their convent, they were still in receipt of these pensions. But it was a difficult path that they navigated in the aftermath. We have um, an account from Mary Cusack, who was the last prioress of the Liz Mullen Foundation that I mentioned. And she actually is compelled to, to write to the Irish Privy Council requesting receipt of her pension. So, so obviously that gives us an indication that there was some difficulty that she faced in actually gaining access to the funds that she was entitled to as, as a former religious. So certainly... This was not an easy road for them to to navigate by any means. As women within early modern society, obviously, they faced difficulties in terms of their position and status within society. And then I suppose the added difficulty of the fact that they were former religious as well. And the state were really at odds with how to deal with this cohort of women in the aftermath of the closures. Was a return to their families an option? That was certainly an option for some. Again, uh, difficult for us to reconstruct in any detail. Again, with the case of Mary Cusack, she was actually the the sister of a very well-established member of the Tudor government administration, Sir Thomas Cusack, who actually became Lord Chancellor of Ireland later on. But, you know, from what we can reconstruct about the level of support she received from her brother, really it was quite minimal. We don't get the sense that she was given any particular level of support by her brother, even though he was very well established within the Tudor government regime. And in fact, we have a letter that survives indicating that he, in fact, owed her money. He became in debt himself towards the end of his life and seems to have gone to his sister for support. So by no means was he necessarily the support structure for her. Mm. Now, despite the state's official banning of vocational living, religious vocations did continue in less formal ways. You look at something called tertiary living, which was a less formal version of living out a religious vacation. Just describe to me what that was. Yeah, so tertiary members of religious orders, this is something that I suppose spans back to the medieval period, but it's essentially a way of life whereby women and men would observe some of the customs and traditions associated with religious order, for example, Dominicans or Franciscans, but they wouldn't necessarily be members of the order or observe a religious rule or be enclosed like nuns who professed some vows. So I suppose this was a mechanism whereby women in Ireland could observe a mode of religious life, but one that was maybe more flexible in relation to the situation that they found themselves in in Ireland in the late 16th century, whereby enclosed formal life as a religious member of an order was was not really an option in the aftermath of the official closures of the houses. Some tried to continue in secret. Tell me about the secret convent in Drogheda and what happened when it came to the attention of the authorities. 
Yeah, so these tertiary sisters, there was definitely a community of them in existence in Drogheda, as you mentioned, from roughly around the beginning of the 17th century, although it's it's very likely that it was even earlier than that. They were associated to the Franciscan order, and we had a Franciscan friary and oratory in establishment in Drogheda during the early part of the 17th century. And during, I suppose, this stage of Irish history, we have what's known as the imposition of mandate campaigns, whereby members of the state government and members of the official Church of Ireland, the Protestant Church, would undertake to enforce official recognition of the church and official observance of the Church of Ireland. And in doing so, they sought to repress these communities of religious including the Franciscans and these Franciscan tertiary sisters. So we have an account from the early 17th century, 1605, where the Church of Ireland Archbishop raids this oratory and discovers this community of clandestine female tertiaries and forces them to disband. But we know from later accounts that despite these efforts, uh, this community continues to operate in Drogheda throughout the early decades of the 17th century. And then when we have the return to Ireland of poor Clares, so they are the enclosed female version of the Irish Franciscans, the Irish poor Clares return in the 1620s. And really we have a multiplication of these convents of both enclosed nuns and also these communities of Franciscan tertiary sisters that spread across Ireland. Now, Cromwell obviously looms large during this period. You deal with the Cromwellian invasion of Ireland and the dramatic impact that that has on the Catholic Church in Ireland. And you write about two religious women in Mayo who apparently died at the hands of the Cromwellian forces. Can you tell me about them? Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, the two um, Dominican tertiary sisters, Honoria Burke and Honoria Megan, they were affiliated to the Dominican priory at Burrishul in County Mayo, And during this phase of the Cromwellian campaigns, their priory is set upon by Cromwellian soldiers who attack the priory and the members of the priory, both men and women, are forced to flee. They are subjected to quite brutal treatment at the hands of Cromwellian forces and they are effectively left for dead um, and they subsequently die as a result of the injuries that they sustain. Um, Now, their cases are interesting because Their case then subsequently is circulated in Europe in Catholic martyrologies, so accounts of those who died as a result of suffering for their faith, Catholic martyrs, accounts of these Catholic martyrs circulate throughout the mid-17th century and beyond. And both Honoria Megan and Honoria Burke feature in some of these accounts. And actually the case of Honoria Megan travels even beyond into Sicily, where there was a fresco depicting her that was created just after the Cromwellian campaigns in a Dominican monastery in Taramina. And the fresco is actually the the cover image of my book. It's one of the only images we have of an Irish woman in a religious order from this era. And it just gives us a sense of how their reputation spread well beyond the island of Ireland and how they were really esteemed within the Catholic Church as martyrs for their faith. Now, the book is centred around three major themes, suppression, migration, 
reintegration. So let's look at migration for a moment. You write about women who left Ireland and travelled to the continent to carry out their religious vocations. Tell me about the poor Clares who were, are based today, you've mentioned them already, at Nuns Island in, in Galway who, who come back in the 1620s and they trace their lineage back to five Irish women who spent time on the continent. Yes, absolutely. So Nuns Island in Galway and the Irish Poor Clare Monastery remains there on the original site today um, and the community remain there. They trace their origins back to a community of Irish sisters who left Ireland in the 1620s and professed at the English Poor Clare Convent in Gravelines, which is located in modern day northern France. And this group of five Irish women subsequently returned to Ireland in 1629 and they established in Merchants Quay in Dublin the first convent, official convent for Irish women religious since the suppression of the monasteries of the 1530s. So nearly 100 years later, we have the return from the continent of these professed Poor Clare sisters who established themselves in Dublin in Merchants Quay. The authorities, once they kind of get wind of this, they are pursued and told to disband. They subsequently retreat to rural Ireland, to um, County Westmeath, where they establish a foundation on the banks of Loch And then a group from this Loch house, which is called Bethlehem, then travel to Galway and establish a foundation in Galway in the 1640s. And it's from this 1640s community in Galway that the Nuns Island community today trace a direct lineage to. And it's as a result, obviously, of their presence on the island that we get the name Nuns Island. Now, another woman you write about is Mary Butler from Kilkenny originally. She was the, the first abbess of the Irish Benedictine Abbey at Ypres, or Ypres as it's, uh, I suppose, more commonly known these days. Tell me about her. Yes, absolutely. So again, the importance of, I suppose, that continental connection for the establishment of Irish female foundations in Ireland in this period. Mary Butler, as you mentioned, she's a Kilkenny-born woman, but she's sent at quite a young age to be educated at the English Benedictine Convent in Ghent. And she subsequently takes on the role of abbess of an Irish foundation for Benedictine sisters that is established at Ypres in the 1680s. And then as part of that, she is asked by King James II to return to Ireland, to Dublin, to establish a community of Irish Benedictines in Dublin, which she duly does. And we have her passport, um, her passport for leaving to travel to Ireland survives. We have that still in the collections of the Benedictine community at Kylemore Abbey. And she travels to Dublin. She establishes a foundation there and also a school. But this is the end of the 1680s. 1688 is when she arrives and the outbreak of the Williamite Wars puts an end to her efforts to establish this new Benedictine foundation in Dublin. She is forced to retreat to the continent where she remains for the rest of her life. But really, I suppose her reputation is significant in terms of the history of Irish women religious and I suppose her role in really securing the foundation at Ypres for the future and putting it on a stable footing for the future meant that it survived intact as an Irish foundation up until the beginning of the 20th century when the onset of the First World War in Europe meant that the Irish sisters at Ypres returned to Ireland. The sisters now remain at Kylemore Abbey in County Galway 
where they have lived since the beginning of the 1920s. And they actually just recently celebrated 100 years in Kymore in 2020. There'll be a special event launching this book at the Poor Clare Monastery on Nuns Island in Galway on Thursday the 8th of December at 7pm. The book once again is called Irish Women in Religious Orders 1530 to 1700 Suppression, Migration and Reintegration. The author is my guest Dr Brona Anne McShane. Brona, thanks uh, indeed for joining us on The History Show. Thanks very much Miles, thank you. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark Dwyer and Ruth Kennington on sound and our researcher Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.